This morning, this seat is reserved for Tom Brady, and it raises a question. Why would we invite someone to be the subject of what we talk about who I absolutely cannot relate to? He was raised in San Mateo, California. It's one of the top 10 most prestigious income areas of the country. He's the epitome of success. He um, has model good looks. He has a supermodel wife. He, he, he's worth $120 million. His wife is worth $368 million. He's had a Hall, Hall of Fame career. He has four championships. All You heard all the stuff. And he is also, in my football world, my mortal enemy. As a Jets fan, thank you, yes. He is the Derek Jeter of the football world in my head. And yet, with all that, as you heard, he's been implicated in a kind of a scandal, cheating accusations, and he remains by his own admission somebody who is still seeking, still not quite sure for, for what he calls something more. You're going to hear him say that a little bit. So why, why would we talk about somebody who I can't relate to? And while most of us can't relate to his life, we can relate to his quest. Because he re- represents somebody who has a, a quest that we kind of all hear in life, especially in this country, where we're told from our earliest days that you need to understand something. You are special. That you can be a hero. That you can rise above, that, that there is a hero within you, that there, you can achieve greatness. And yet we find ourselves perpetually disappointed in that pursuit. It doesn't stop the pursuit, it just intensifies it. I can relate to that. And God has something to say about that. I want to invite you to take a look at what he might have to say. And I, I'm going to start you in the book of Ecclesiastes, right in the center of the Bible. If you have a Bible or access to one, uh, would you take a look? Uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is how it goes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, where this kind of pursuit is actually talked about by God and exemplified by Solomon, who was also born into uh, a lot of resources and given a lot of opportunity and pursued in his own way the same kind of satisfaction that says, I have a purpose in life. What is it? There's a drive that's actually given. That was embedded in me as a child, and it was probably embedded in most of us, that says that I have a purpose, and I, it is important to me that I excel. I need to find a certain level of victory in my life. I need to have a certain level of rising above everybody else. I need to feel certain kinds of satisfactions in my life, certain kinds of um, rushes that make life feel like it's worth living. And the pursuit is really for my, what my identity is in this world. What is my role here? Where do, I, where do I fit in? What am I supposed to do? And I'm supposed to do something that probably no one else is, is capable of doing because, as I hear, there's only one me, right? Some say amen about that kind of thing. But it means you've got a distinct purpose. What is it? What is it that satisfies, that exhilarates, that completes us as people? fulfills us. And our whole value then in life for most of us, conscious or, or subconscious in our thinking, is the pursuit of that which is going to get me where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be somewhere. I'm supposed to be at some level. What's going to get me to that spot? That becomes a drive in our lives. Ecclesiastes talks about that drive. 
and it's, and it's written out of a whole bunch of frustration. And if you know the book of Ecclesiastes at all, it is a dark book. It's a gritty book. It's, it's not full of syrup and, and nice things. It's pain and frustration and meaninglessness. And the author of Ecclesiastes says over and over again, this is what I'm finding, this pursuit is fruitless. It's frustrating. It doesn't have an end. It's like, it says, he uses a phrase over and over again, everything is meaningless. Me, everything I do is meaningless. The, the phrase, I heard somebody say, it's like, the, he says, meaningless, meaningless. It's almost like he says, it's like soap bubbles. And you're trying to catch them and say, I'm supposed to collect them, but when you touch them, they just pop. Soap bubbles of soap bubbles, all is soap bubbles. But he talks about his pursuits, and he has the resources to pursue them. Look at Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. I, calls himself the teacher because he's sharing what he's learned, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that's done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on mine. I've, men, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All, all of them are meaningless. They're like chasing after the wind. This is not going to be a really positive message, by the way, at this point. It feels like you're chasing after the wind. You ever tried it? can be fun, but you're not going to win. You're not going to catch it. And he says, what's tri- twisted cannot be straightened. What's lacking cannot be counted. And so he, he, he goes on to say in verse 16, I thought to myself, look, okay, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over me. There's a competition going on. Everybody else has learned certain things, but I kind of, I've, wrote, I've got the better grades. I got the better ACT scores. I'm, 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 I'm done okay for myself. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied, my, applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also to madness and folly. In other words, I'm going to party. That's what that's about. Hey, you know what? It's, it's, life's a good time. Let's try the good time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just get myself in exhilarating circumstances. But I learned, too, that this, too, is like chasing after the wind. With much so- wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge the more grief. The more he tries, the, the less it happens. There's this drive to say, okay, I established my purpose because I'm supposed to be special, so I'm going to be the best at something. I'm going to rise above the competition. I'm going to be noticed. I'm going to excel. What can I excel at? Or if I can't be the best, I'm going to feel the best that I can feel. What is it that will make me feel like now, now I'm satisfied, now this feels good? And usually that comes through Winning, attaining, achieving, succeeding, excelling. For Tom Brady, it was from an early obsession. His older sister, was in an interview, said that uh, his older sister was actually very accomplished in many things, and among them um, athletics. And this is what Maureen, his older sister, said. Us girls, we were all pretty good in sports, always in the newspaper. Tommy always used to be known as Maureen Brady's little brother or the little Brady. And so he writes a paper when he's in school. And one day he wants us all... That he wants us, one day he wants us all to be known as Tom Brady's sisters. And he wrote, one day I'm going to be a household name. That became his mantra. His parents heard him say it all the time. One day I'm going to be a household name. It became the driving force in his life, an early obsession. And that obsession that says... He's got to exceed above what anybody else could do. He's got to work harder. He's got to get there. Has driven him by his own admission ever since. Just this last couple of weeks with the start of the NFL season, 
a, a, a new Under Armour commercial has come out that features Tom Brady, and it's got kind of that mantra. I want you to see it, and I want you to notice he's wearing Under Armour, but w- notice what you see on his shirt. Take a look. yourself. I will. See what was on his shirt? It's a number. It wasn't the number 12, which is his jersey number. It's the number 199. You know what that is? Significance of that? In the 2000 draft, Tom Brady was chosen in the sixth round. He was the 199th person selected in the draft. He has let, by, by, by his admission, he has let that be the driving force, that he has got to prove something. He's going to prove that 198 choices were wrong because he should have been taken first. He's won four Super Bowls. He's been multiple MVPs, and he still wears that shirt. He still says every single day there is still a chase going on in his life. He's fueled by competition. He's fueled by the slights he's felt because because he says what I have heard and myself feel. I'm supposed to be special. I'm supposed to be somebody. I'm supposed to be a household name. I'm supposed to feel something that excels. I'm supposed to excel at something that no one else can. can. And so we make that pursuit. And you know what happens early in, our, in a whole lot of our lives? We find things that help us think we might actually attain that. We climb some ladders. We get some notoriety. We, try, we, find, we discover something that, that we're pretty good at. And we give ourselves to go, that, maybe that's it. Maybe I can excel in that. And so for some of us, it's our jobs. Some of us, it's, it's being a salesman. Some of us, it's being a mother. And sometimes, it's, it's being somebody who can, who can perform in a certain realm and we get good at it. We go, ooh, there it is. There it is. Let me, that's going to take me to where that place I can find where that satisfaction comes. And then you read in Ecclesiastes, verse 2, or chapter 2, some things like this. Here's the pursuit. I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I, then he, he, here's other things. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water grows. I mean, this guy's got a beach house, and he's got a mountain house, and he's got a nice house. Where, you know, and, I, and then he's got people working for him. He rises up. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks and cars. Well, he doesn't say that, but that's the equivalent. Then anyone in Jerusalem before me, I amassed silver and gold. I had a 401k that was really rocking. I was, look. He says, I, 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 and, and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers. I mean, I had a great stereo system. I had... The Beats headset. I'm like, I'm attaining stuff. And, and a harem as well, man. I mean, he, this guy has got it going on. Pregnates a, 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 an actress, marries a supermodel. 
the delights of a heart of a man. I became greater than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Now, would you just pause for a minute? Come on, let's be honest. That sounds pretty good to me. Doesn't it? Doesn't that feel like that should do something for you? Verse 10, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was soap bubbles. Everything was meaningless, like chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He faces this inevitable thing that happens that you are probably growingly aware of. Depending on how old you are, you're more aware of it. If you're young, you haven't fully got this yet, but it's coming. The the inevitable reality of emptiness that says nothing really works. Nothing fully satisfies. That which you, because we encounter life, and then life deals with something that says there's that which you, you realize you can't achieve. All of a sudden, you start failing. You start losing. You start not being the one chosen. You start not getting the return on the investment. All of a sudden, the things you achieve, you thought you could achieve, you get weaker. You can't perform like you used to perform. And it nags at you. What's wrong? This isn't working. So some things happen in life that show us that there's stuff we cannot achieve. But sometimes the more painful stuff is what happens with what we do achieve. We raise ourselves to a certain level and we realize something, that the beauty fades. Oh, it does. The titillations reduce. The crowds move on. The the impressions fade, the rushes diminish, the toys break and age, and we're left with this result that is horrifying to us if we really stop and think about it, but we don't think about it very often because we just divert our attention. We just self-medicate or we try new things, but but, but what is at the bottom of it is we're more dissatisfied now than before we started. You know why? Because before, at least we had hope. We thought something was going to produce something, and now we've played all our cards, and we don't have any more cards to play. And that same hunger is there, except now we don't have any untried options. Very famous 60 Minutes interview happened with Tom Brady after he won um, three Super Bowls. So it was about 10 years ago. And this made a lot of news because he said something about his accomplishments, and who he was. Listen to what he says in this interview. I do have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is... I mean, I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? Wish I knew. Wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being a quarterback. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? Now, and just for effect, we'll play it again. Okay. Now. Shut up, Tom. Shut up. <laughs> Ten years later, this last January, New York Times sent a report, and they talked to Tom Brady, and they re- actually quoted himself back to himself. 
He said, 10 years ago, you said those words. This is what he said in response. He, he says, yeah, I got a litany of Bibles sent to me after that. And he says, when I think back on that, what a narrow perspective I had. I'm 27. I don't know blank, he says. And then listen to the next thing he says. Not that I know blank at 37. So the interviewer went on. He says, I asked Brady if, if he worried that too much of his life was wrapped up in football. He says, Brady ducked the question except to confirm his premise that football is pretty much everything to him. Football, he said, Brady said, is unconditional love. So the, so the interviewer asked him this. He said, I tried a different tack. Does Brady worry about confronting a void? Almost sounds like he's a preacher, doesn't it, right there? No shortage of former players have lamented that nothing after football measures up to its exhilaration and camaraderie. And this turned Brady serious. You need a purpose when you wake up in the morning, he said. When I don't have the purpose of football, I know that's going to be a really hard thing for me. There's an inevitable emptiness that comes. And as a result of that, I translate that into my life because I haven't had all the successes. I haven't had all the resources that he's had or that Solomon had writing Ecclesiastes, but I have had the same feeling. I thought this was going to feel different. I thought this was going to go differently. I thought I'd be in a different place by now. I thought I would feel more fulfilled in my life. Why do I feel like I'm still not getting anywhere? And the recourse when we feel that is... See if you can relate to this, is is one or a combination or a progression of these things. One is, it raises our compulsion. We say, okay, I've just got to achieve more. I've got to to get more. I've I've got this tenacious resolution about myself that I've got to work harder. I've got to drive more. I've got to be more intense. It gets more desperate. Tom Brady was asked about what his perspective on is on his, what he does, and he just says this. He said this, I really do just want to win. And that has and will continue to be the reason that motivates me and is the biggest factor in my decision-making process. He, he went on to say, I don't care about three years ago. I don't care about two years ago. I don't care about last year. The only thing I care about is this week. If you don't play to win, don't play at all, he said. He was asked once, so which of his four Super Bowl rings is his favorite? And he said, my answer is always the same thing about the, what I've achieved. He has the four rings. He said, my favorite ring is the next one. There's got to be more. There's got to be something else that it gets added to. There's a compulsion. Maybe it's not compulsion for some. It's that or perhaps what we do is we, we give, begin to look for ways to leverage our world to, uh, to any advantage we can find. To look for an extra overlooked thing, to look for a little extra that gets us ahead. It leads to compromise. It leads to manipulation. It leads to using situations. Sometimes it leads to us sacrificing rules. And then, so you heard it, after the AFC Championship this year, there was a problem. 11 out of 12 footballs were found to be deflated, which you'll hear in this clip led to this accusation. Reporting tonight, the sports controversy that seemed to have the whole country talking back in January 
And it's painting the New England Patriots and their superstar quarterback, Tom Brady, in a very harsh light. The issue is whether the New England Patriots cheated in the AFC title game against Indianapolis by underinflating the footballs they used, in theory, making them easier to handle. And now that report, commissioned by the NFL, makes the case that some on the team probably did and that Brady was probably aware of it. Four-game suspension followed, which then was challenged. And all the questions got asked. You're the consensus best player in the league. You've won three Super Bowls. Why would there be any motivation to do anything like that? Now, I'm not here to tell you whether he did it or knew it or not, although he did and he was. <laughs> Should take away that Super Bowl victory and give it to the team that finished last in his division. I'm just saying... Oh, oh. But think about it. Why would somebody who is attained so much feel, feel the need to leverage an advantage, an unfair advantage, unless there is something so compelling and so driving still at work that says, it's not enough. I've got to have more. I've got to get it. I've got to achieve. I've got to prove. I still have something I have to prove, whether it's to my world or myself or God or somebody. And so the recourse for when we discover that it's not working is to try to find things to leverage. Or maybe for some of us, a whole lot of us, what we do is we start to excuse ourselves and we start to accuse other people. We get angry and we power up against that which blocks us from reaching our goals. It's my boss at work. It's those people who I work with. It's my family. It's, it's the limitations of things in my world that aren't cooperating and it's unfair because in, the, in our hearts we think I'm supposed to get somewhere and I would too. Because I'm destined for that. If it, if it just didn't meet with unfair resistance. For some, it turns into a prideful self-deception that just tries to boast and convince ourselves that we're still winners, we're still superior, even though the world doesn't acknowledge it or accomplishes aren't, accomplishments aren't proving it. I'm, I'm going to defend myself as being, as being true and right. And so we fight court cases. And that happened. And just a few weeks before this NFL season, the ruling came down. And listen carefully to what the ruling said about the Tom Brady case. Tom Brady won, Roger Goodell zero at halftime. Today, the federal judge lifted the four-game suspension that the NFL commissioner gave Brady for allegedly using underinflated footballs in a championship game. The judge said the NFL should have informed Brady in advance that he was subject to such a penalty. Goodell, a people. Brady insisted all along that he had nothing to do with deflating footballs below lead standards at last season's AFC Championship game. In handing out his original four-game suspension, Goodell said Brady not only participated in the scheme, but hampered the investigation by destroying his cell phone. Today's ruling makes no judgments on Brady's actions. Hear that? That the star quarterback was treated unfairly through much of the process. And here's your reaction. And that's what we want. Now, sometimes it leads to a fighting to prove ourselves, to defend ourselves, to say we're, we, we are what we want to believe we are. And then sometimes it leads to an inevitable feeling. And that feeling has been called by the writer of Ecclesiastes, despair. It's a combination of frustration and loss of hope, anger, bitterness. 
Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 2 in a couple different places. Look at 17, verse 17. So after all this is done, he says, so I hated life because the work that's done under the sun is grievous to me. All of it's meaningless. So bubbles. It's chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me and who knows whether it'll be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This is, too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. It gets repeated over and over and over again in, in chapter 9. He, let me just read you this really quick. He's, he, he, he uses a similar phrase, but he says, I've seen something else, 9-11, I've seen something else under the sun. The race doesn't go to the swift, the battle doesn't go to the strong, food doesn't come to the wise, wealth doesn't come to the brilliant, or favor doesn't come to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. We get disillusioned, we get bitter, we get confused for sure. Why isn't this working? This isn't the way it was supposed to be. And then there's a sense of resignation that happens. And then we ply ourselves with artificial substitutes to feel better about ourselves. And then, here's, here's one other thing that we do with this state that we're in. Sometimes we, get, we turn and get God involved. A whole lot of us in the room, might have, you might be here today because some things have not gone any way the way you thought they should, the way they should go. And you thought, wait a minute. I need to connect with God. God will help. Yeah, God, God is the one who gives victories. God is the one. And so we come to God and we say, look, you made me. You gave me, you know, I have this passion and I'm coming to you. I need you to make this happen. I'm going to ask him to intervene and bring the victory that I'm intended to have. And we turn to God or religion. It was in, that same um, interview, again, just this year uh, with Tom Brady. They walked through his home and Tom Brady was, was raised Roman Catholic, hasn't been practicing, but he, but he, but he says, this is what he, the, the interviewer said, he marched me back into the house, through the kitchen, and past a shelf that displayed a large glass menorah. We're not Jewish, Brady said when I asked him about this, but I think we're into everything. I don't know what I believe. I think there's a belief system. I'm just not sure what it is. There's some way that we want to tap into it and not sure what it is, but if it would help, then that's okay. And then a revelation comes. A revelation that comes to somebody who is just constantly looking, wondering why life isn't cooperating. And here's the revelation that God has that he explains here and in other places. Not only may God not be intervening, to help you get where you, uh, to achieve the greatness that you were intended for, it could be that God is the very one blocking it. That God is the one introducing the pain into your life right now. That God is the one allowing the suffering to happen. That God who says he is love may still have a surgeon's scalpel and may be cutting you in ways that are cutting deeply and you're calling on him to relieve the the pain from somebody who's stabbing you and he's the one holding the knife. What if God is responsible for the the sense of lostness and emptiness that we're feeling? 
And what if the reason for that is that the foundational assumption we have about who we're intended to be is absolutely incorrect? That we're not intended to prove our worth. That we weren't destined for to be superior to others. That, it, that our purpose in life was not to attain a position or attain a certain amount of happiness or to get some things that will make us feel a certain way. What if that was never the assignment from the beginning? What if it's not our intended purpose? What if this is true, that what God said to the children of Israel is true for us too? When you get, when you get to the place where you're, you've eaten and are satisfied, this is when they go into the promised land. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power, the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so it confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. What if God wants to remake and reconfigure the very core of what we believe our purpose is on the planet? What if God is the one doing the thwarting of your goals that you're so frustrated about right now? What if God is the one who is wrecking your plans? What if God is the one who's robbing you of your success? What if he's doing that because in his love... He gives on-ramps occasionally into any life to say, come reconsider that, that I would need to expose something that's a necessary surgery because I love you so much. And if he does that, and if that's true, then God has this pattern he works where he will systematically knock down the dream. He will burn it to the ground. He will remove that which we think is our purpose. He'll then let us feel it and grieve over it and ache over it and accuse and wrestle and struggle and feel the vacuum that it creates. And then he offers a radically different replacement at the core of what our purpose is, of what gives us value and worth and purpose. And that has nothing to do with your abilities or your or your accomplishments, or, or your accumulations. has nothing to do with what you're good at or not good at. What if the, the results and success are completely to be swept away, and God does that because he's disciplining us. He's performing surgery, Hebrews 12. This is the context of this. My child, don't ignore it when the Lord disciplines you, when he's cutting into your life. Don't be discouraged when he corrects you, when he's trying to replace something with something else. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes. He causes pain for those he accepts as children. There's no, none of that. No surgery. I'm going to use that word. No, no surgery in your soul. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and stand firm on your shaky legs. Brendan Manning, who was one of my favorite authors and passed away in the last couple of years, used to he wrote about this, and he called this the second conversion that needs to happen in a person's life. And the first conversion is where we need to realize we need our sins forgiven and we can't make ourselves clean, and we come to the cross of Jesus. That's the first conversion which a whole lot of us in the room need to consider. 
It starts with coming and, and having Jesus do something that we can't do for ourselves. But then he talks about a second conversion that happens because he says a person can meet Jesus, have their sins forgiven, and live in the power of their own flesh and strength until their mid-30s, he says. And then things begin to break down. Then things begin to challenge you. Or then the on-ramp opens up and God says, time for a second conversion. Where you die to your ideas of what makes you still acceptable to God, what your purpose is with God, what the outcome is supposed to be in your life. You recognize that death, you're converted from it, and you find your worth in something completely outside the outcomes or your abilities. Richard Rohr uh, writes about it uh, in his book where he talks about the second half of life, Falling Upwards is the name of the book. He says, in the first half of our life, we fight the devil and we have the illusion and inflation of winning now and then. In the second half of life, after the second conversion, we always lose because we're invariably fighting God. He says this, when you get your who am I question right, the what should I do questions tend to take care of themselves. God will occasionally introduce opportunities into anybody's life if we're paying attention. And can I say this? He's done it in some of your lives just recently. For some of us, he's doing it right now. If we recognize it. He allows you to feel the loss and the vacuum and the inability and the impotence that you're feeling right now in order to bring you to a a chance where something changes at the core of what your purpose is, where your worth is, what makes you valuable to him, what makes you significant and important. And that surgery is very, very painful when it happens. A death has to happen in order for that new life to take root. And that death is very painful. With your indulgence, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about our journey. Some of you heard this before. Uh, Forgive me for that, but it's just so significant when I think about this. And I'll try to say this quickly. I'll try to say it composed. Well-meaning people told me when I was a very young man that there was something special about me that God was going to use me in significant ways. I would, say, I would say things you would smile at now, like I think you actually could, might be the next Billy Graham. I think that God is going to use you in ways because there's, some, there's an anointing on your life when you, do, when you do stuff. Now, I'm 16 years old. I'm preaching my first sermons. People are telling me this. And I think about God and his wonder. And there's a part of me that says, that's amazing. I really want to know him and serve him. And then there's a part of me that was absolutely messed up by hearing that. When I was 17 years old, I was, I was given opportunity. I won some awards. I was given opportunity to go. And I hope you understand. I'm not saying this. Okay, I'm just going to say it. If you think I'm boasting, then forgive me. I, I was given opportunity to travel. And I was traveling as what they called the teen evangelist. Going, I was all over the Midwest at that time. I went to churches around this area. And I was living in Indiana. And, and, and people were inviting me. And there were these amazing things happening. I go from there. I go to school. And I figure, okay, I got to go to school to get a degree because that's what you're supposed to do. I get, become a Bible major. I go to seminary seven years. And basically all that time, I'm still speaking and I'm performing and I'm doing these things. And I'm waiting to see, you know, what the things open up. I graduate from school and I get hired to go to a mega church in Akron, Ohio, where I serve. And I'm in charge of an entire youth ministry, speaking in front of thousands of people. I'm the second preacher on staff. I, I'm invited to do this stuff. And, and there's a belief at the core of that for me. There has been. We now call it affectionately the destined for greatness thing that says, 
God's going to use me. I'm going to make impact. This is what I was born for. We got invited then to go to the West Coast and help a planting church get started through a time that we thought was going to stretch our faith. We were asking God to stretch our faith. Really dumb thing to ask. Because I had no idea what that really meant. And God did it, but not what I thought. And I thought, yes, we're going to sacrifice. We're going to take our young daughter. We're going to go across country where we don't know, know anybody. We're going to work with this group of people. And then we're going to see God move. And I, I will, over the next two years, we saw something happen in our, I, have, I had a bag of tricks and I, I could pull stuff out of the bag of tricks and use them and they would make impact. And one by one, I started pulling out stuff from my bag of tricks and it wasn't working. And it wasn't having impact. And things weren't growing. And things weren't happening. And it began to feel like something was wrong. So in my mind, I thought, I got to get God involved in this. There's, what do I, and I started calling out to God, what am I missing? What am I doing wrong? Are you punishing me? Are you disciplined? I, I'm ready to learn it. I will learn whatever you want me to learn. Just help me to learn it. We were running out of money. We were running out of people. People were moving away. It was the economy went down. It, it was, but, but it wasn't just that. There was something going on. And I found myself questioning my faith. I found myself questioning God. Why are you doing this? Why would you do this? Why, how can you be kind to do this? This is what you, I'm doing this for you. How, could you. how could you let this happen? At the same time, we were experiencing what they call secondary infertility. We're trying to get pregnant. And we had no trouble the first time, and now we can't. And there's an infertility happening in our physical world, and there's an infertility happening in our spiritual world. And I worked harder, and I prayed more, and I, and I called on God, and I, I, I kept pulling stuff out of my bag of tricks until it came to the place where the bag was empty. And my recourse was to think, God has removed his hand from my life. I don't know what I might have done, but he's removed the anointing. There was a surgery that started through that process that was an answer to the prayer that continues to this day. In that moment, they say, you know, when you're at your lowest point and you're so desperate, that's where you're end of your rope, that's where God will hold you. That's when you'll feel him. I'm here to tell you that that is not the case. I was at the end and I did not feel anything. I felt completely abandoned by God. And we closed that church. And it died. I was left not knowing where to go, what to do. Through a series of events, we were invited to come here with the possibility of doing something again, which just seemed crazy to me because I didn't know what I thought of God and I didn't know what I thought of how this worked and I surely didn't know what I thought about myself. And I would tell you in the moment, at that time, where they say, what lessons are you learning about God? With absolute conviction, I would tell you, I'm not learning any lessons. My soul, my soul is decaying. My faith is dying. It's not, nothing is happening. We came here with a heart and a vision, but with uncertainty. A year into our work here, I had a come to Jesus time, but it was more like, Jesus, come to Tom. We're going to have some words. I sat by a pond outside the city all day by myself, and I had it out with God. And I don't, hear voices, and I don't necessarily, but there was something that came, 
an impression that came to me as I was unsure because here, here's why. A year into doing things here, the exact same pattern had happened. We realized we could die here now and no one would come, here would come to the funeral because no one knows us. No one cares about us. We're not making any impact. So right on the verge of deciding whether it's time to bring in a second team member, why would I do that? Sitting by the side of that pond, a question came to my mind that I did not want to hear, and I don't know where it came from, but I think it probably came from God's spirit in me. And God seemed to be asking me, if this is what I want, if it never grows anywhere, it doesn't accomplish anything, if your name is never known, but you get to be part of what I'm doing, is that okay with you? And I wept. As I felt my dream, not just my dream, my identity die. That's not who I was supposed to be. I was destined for something else. But there was nowhere to turn. There was no recourse. And in that day, I finally just said, okay. Okay. I almost had an assurance from God that I'll apologize to you about, which I really sensed him saying to me, I'm going to take you on a road, and it'll never make headlines. Don't expect it to. It won't be, oh, you're going to learn this lesson, and then it's going to happen. No, that's not going to happen. I love you too much to feed that disease in you. And it continued, the struggle continued. I walked away from that and said, where is my identity? There was a moment where God invites me and invited me to die to that identity and to say, where is my worth found? Is it possible that my, my very worth, my value to God Almighty is not what I can stand up and do in front of people? It's not how I can lead. It's not the impact or, or how fast things grow or how, how, what gets accumulated. It has zero to do with that. It is absolutely as a gift just bestowed on me because God says, because of my son, I love you. That's it. And you have value to me just because I love you. Just because you're my child. That's what I think First John 3 is saying. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. The reason the world doesn't understand us is that it didn't, doesn't understand him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and we have not yet we, uh, and we will be, I'm sorry, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we'll sh- we shall be like him, we'll see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself, just as he's pure. I don't know where Tom Brady is. That's not the point, right? The point is God does something in our lives where he invites us to the cross, where the ground is completely level. No one is any higher than anybody else and says, would you allow your identity to be given to you freely but independently of what, who you are, what you've been and what you do? Would you revel in the fact that you have been declared by God to be completely clean and whole and your purpose will be fulfilled regardless what you do or who notices and the overjoyed celebration of heaven will be given to you just because of Jesus in you, not because of you. 
that surgery, I need to tell you, in my life is not over. It's a constant battle. That demon, that disease rises up in me. And God has found ways to continue, but in His mercy, His severe mercy, to expose it and to treat it. It's possible that the, the, the most, most people most to be pitied in our world are those who think that they are attaining their purpose. Matthew 16. Whoever, whoever wants to save his life, that person is going to lose it. You want to earn it, they're going to lose your, their life. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Could it be, can I just ask you this gently? Could it be that the disappointment, the failure feeling, the frustration, the emptiness in your career, the emptiness you're feeling in your marriage or in your parenting or in your possessions or the things that exhilarate you, that, that those things are, are actually God's invitation to transfer your hope and your identity from those outlets, making those work, and find it fully and completely in the fact that you are His. You're embraced. You're celebrated simply because Jesus is in you. When that happens, it gives us freedom. It, it, it gives us value. It gives us worth. It gives us what Romans eight, or 3 and 8 says. Now God has shown us a different way of being right in His sight, not by obeying the law, but by the way He promised in the Scriptures long ago. We're made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus to take away our sins. And because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, now if we are children, we are heirs with Him, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. That's where my worth is. That's where my value is. Am I willing, can I ask you, are you willing to let the death happen so a new life can take its place? It's like, I'm going to do it anyway, Dan. I'm going to keep you five more minutes because I want you to hear and I want you to have an opportunity to sing the song we sang just before I came up because the words of that chorus are right in line with this. Think about this, okay? Would you think about this? And can it be something that is perhaps an actual prayer from your heart. Pray with me, and then we're going to go right into the song. 